Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Today we are with Peggy Dillard, Director of Library and Archives at the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library in Stanton, Virginia. And today we're going to be talking about Wilson after World War I and the peace that followed. This is the third of a three-part series on Wilson. The war is over in Europe. Peace has finally come. Everybody is getting ready for the big peace conference that's going to be taking place in 1919. And Woodrow Wilson makes a very interesting decision to be part of this actual peace conference. Why is this an unusual decision, and how is it received by the Europeans? Once the armistice is signed, the debate starts almost immediately whether Wilson should go. There are people in Congress here who told Wilson, your place is here, you can dictate or you can um, participate in the peace conference from here. Lloyd George and Clemenceau did not feel it was appropriate for Wilson to come. They saw him as a head of state, and they saw the peace conference as a meeting of prime ministers. They didn't think he should come at all. They were against him coming. Again, they didn't feel it was an appropriate place for a head of state. Today, we would send our secretary of state. But again, Wilson felt this was his place. This was his time to get his peace initiatives into the peace treaty from his 14 points, and he wanted to go. Can you describe his reception in Europe? He was received almost like a rock star. There are pictures, there are political cartoons of Wilson being greeted by Viva la Wilson, and his reception in Paris and France, it's thunderous almost. Uh, Edith talks about them riding through Paris and that the crowds, the roar was deafening, that Wilson is just taking it in stride and doffing his hat, and the French president is just sitting there just kind of stunned by it all. He was received as, I don't want to say the savior, but uh, he was well-received. He receives this rapturous welcome in Europe. Does he see that as something that legitimizes his political goals for the peace process? Is he not just speaking at this point for the American people, but for everybody that's been involved in this war? I think to some degree he probably did. Looked like he was taking it all in stride, but I'm sure it was a boost for his ego and his what he felt was his policies and his platform. Can you describe his relationship with the other leaders during the conference? He met mostly with Lloyd George and Clemenceau and Orlando. They made up the Big Four, or the Council of Four. Before that, there had been a Council of Ten, but he got along well with Clemenceau and George. I think it was amicable. Uh, Orlando didn't speak English, so I think the communication there was a little difficult. He had to have a translator. But I, I think it was, was an amicable working relationship with the four of them. But he apparently has some different ideas about what this piece is supposed to accomplish. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. His 14 points served as the basis for the peace treaty. 
and that was territorial issues as as well as you know some other general issues but that served as the basis and he he wanted things like national autonomy uh peace through the people freedom of of the seas probably would have been more lenient on Germany than England and France who had suffered through four grueling years of war and really wanted Germany to pay and to suffer and I, I think Wilson evened that out a little. Last podcast we talked about before the war actually ends, Wilson already has a bit of a brain trust working on all these ideas for the peace after the war. There is a wonderful quote by Harold Nicholson, a British diplomat at the time, and he writes, Had the Treaty of Paris been drafted solely by the American experts, it would have been one of the wisest as well as the most scientific document ever devised. Um, so it seems like Wilson goes to this conference with just an expert, you know, he's got experts on everything. He's drafted all these wonderful documents to really uh, ensure that peace remains in you know throughout the world you know for all time but what goes wrong in the end wilson from the time war started has peace in mind and again he's wanting to put it in the hands of the people um but there is negotiation that has to occur i mean there's a lot of parties in play here who have to agree to all of this the peace treaty did come out being a little harsh on germany and Wilson did have his League of Nations idea that was accepted by all of Europe. It was only the United States who objected. Some people say that World War I basically sets the stage for World War II, and it would seem that a lot of Wilson's ideas would have perhaps prevented that from happening. Yes, that's possible. Uh, some historians say that World War II would have happened no matter what. It has been speculated that if Wilson had let the war go on for a few more months, really defeat Germany, because at the time the armistice was signed, I don't think Germany felt like it was truly defeated. If the war had continued for two or three, maybe six more months, uh, Wilson would have come out as you know, the Americans would have been seen as the, the victors. Wilson would have had a more cemented role. Germany would have been defeated totally. They could have gotten a, an absolute you know, unconditional surrender than what they did get. So that has been speculated, that Wilson, he was so eager to get some kind of peace going, I think maybe prematurely ended the war. So that's one thought. What is his vision for this League of Nations? The League of Nations would be an organization of nations that come together, support each other, and would be an association against you know, any kind of external aggression, that if one nation suffered from any kind of aggressor, then the members would come together. That was really the backbone of the League. And that was the one point that the Republican faction in the United States objected to, and what kept them from ratifying that treaty. So this was something that is adopted in Europe? Yes. But not in Wilson's own country? No. And it's based on that, that one clause that said assistance would be provided to any nation who experienced any kind of external aggression. 
And that was one thing Wilson was not willing to compromise on. He felt like he had spent months at this peace treaty or at these peace conference negotiating this and he had given his word to his European allies and to bring it home and to have the Congress pick it apart and amend it and change it, he felt would be kind of betraying that trust he had set up with his European allies. But that was the one clause that they objected to and kept us from joining the League. Wilson travels the United States when he comes back from Europe and he's really speaking to the people. Um, some historians have been a little critical of that and said, you know, he should have been banging on the doors of congressmen and people like that, convincing them to sign this. But Wilson always feels like, kind of like Teddy Roosevelt does, I've got to kind of go over the heads of these guys and talk to the people. Do you think the American people were a little more receptive of this idea of Wilson's, or do you think by this time his health is not so great? Is he just kind of waning as a political star? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think he sees himself as waning. This is the intellectual in Wilson coming out. He's tried to negotiate with these congressmen. I think he feels, he sees that he's not getting anywhere. So the intellectual in him is he wants to go educate the people. He feels if he gets out there and can tell the people and educate them about the league, then they will see that it's a good thing to do and, and get their congressmen to vote for it. So him going out to the people is, is his decision to, to educate them. And I think he does feel if he can educate them and tell them himself what the League of Nations is all about, they will be more receptive to it. His health is declining at this point, and he does start out and starts making his way across the country, uh, stops and makes several speeches each day. He's a, a very talented public speaker and he really rallies the crowds. He does receive some rather cool reception in places where he goes where, you know, the governor or the mayor of the city is a Republican or, you know, an anti-League of Nations faction. He gets a cool reception from them, but the people overall greeted him warmly. Wilson was in California uh, on his tour of the West uh, promoting the, the League of Nations when he fell ill. And his wife, Edith, and his physician, uh, Dr. Carrie Grayson, convinced him to stop the tour and head back to D.C. Once they got back to D.C. a few days later, he suffered his stroke. And it was during this time that he was still fighting with the um, Congress about the League of Nations. And some people say it was his stroke that affected his ability to compromise. He just would not compromise. Edith could not get him to compromise and change that one clause about coming to the aid of nations who are you know, having some kind of aggressor you know, attacking them or anything. Um, he would not compromise on that. So he, this is 1919, he's basically for six months almost not seen by anyone. He does recover enough that he can serve out the last year of his presidency. So in 1920, he, he really thought he was going to run again. He wanted to run for president again. I think Wilson's mind was such that to give up meant that it was, it was over. It was just so disheartening to him when you know, he was told that he was not going to be the nominee or he was not going to be asked to seek re-election in 1920. It really was rather a blow. So he, he served out his, his term just as an invalid. 
Once he suffered the stroke in October of 1919, he, he didn't really have much influence after that. It's often said that Washington fought a war to create a country. Uh, Lincoln fights a war to keep the country together. What is Wilson's legacy as a wartime leader, as an American leader? Uh, his legacy may be to our country, what changes in terms of our role in the world after Wilson, and maybe what is his broader legacy to the world? I think his legacy as a war president is bringing the United States to the world stage. Up to this point, the United States had had no involvement in any kind of international conflict other than, you know, being attacked in our, you know, our own war for independence. But it's really the first time that we are involved on the world stage and Wilson takes us there and he establishes the United States as as a viable power. And I think this is this starts the rise of of the United States as as a viable player on the world stage. Do you think Europe at this point starts to look westward at the United States and realize there is something big, there is something important there? I think so. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. It's been very interesting. And now I'd like to give you another moment to tell everybody about the Wilson Library here in Stanton, Virginia. Okay. We are open seven days a week, Monday through Saturday, 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, and Sunday from 12 to 5. Uh, you can find more information on our website, www.woodrowwilson.org. Uh, you can come tour the Wilson Birthplace, the museum that has exhibits on Wilson, and uh, we have his Pierce Arrow limousine here, as well as the library and archives uh, that's available for research. So please come. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.